Television squared away. Here we go. Very good. Manager. All right, Mayor, we've got uh, uh, three pop-ups, and um, then we're going to have a presentation on the 757 Accelerator, which I've talked to you all a little bit about, uh, but Evans McMillan and Monique Adams are here. We'll talk a little bit more about that before they step up. What an exciting opportunity that we've got that's on your agenda tonight. Um, Sarah Fuller is going to talk to you about, you've got three grant opportunities on the, the agenda uh, relative to addressing opioid and um, really want to have some time to, we really haven't talked about that with you all as a group, so I thought this would be an appropriate time to do that. Uh, it's really fun stuff happening at the Slover relative to the makerspace, and I want you all to be aware of, of what's coming your way that um, will open up soon after your um, uh, recess. And then um, I think uh, the, the water system that we have is pretty amazing, and it's, I don't know that everybody understands it fully, and so Kristen Lentz has got a program that um, um, she will make, and uh, if we have time, we're going to talk about uh, demolition of, of the properties. So with that said, um, Stephanie Owls, your Director of uh, Elections and, and um, uh, General Registrar, is going to talk to you about a precinct boundary update. Hi, good evening. Good evening. Happy free. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, this is a proposal from the Norfolk Electoral Board for some precinct boundary changes. Currently, our Granby precinct is a split congressional district with the redistricting that happened in April of 2016. It became a split congressional district, and our proposal is to change the boundary lines between Titustown and Granby to relocate those 30 voters that are voting in Congressional District 2 um, to move them over to Titustown so they will vote with the rest of Congressional District 2 in Titustown. We went actually door-to-door -door and spoke with voters that were registered in that precinct. They didn't have any concerns. There would not be any changes to the ward boundaries. Um, it would impact the super ward. You would have those 30 people going from super ward 6 to 7. Um, but they were all okay with the move. So this is what the numbers would look like on the proposed numbers. Again, it's 30 total registered voters who literally vote in a separate congressional district from the rest of their precinct across the street from them. The other change that we're proposing is with regards to the Brambleton Precinct. As you're aware, the Jordan Newby Library, the former Jordan Newby Library closed, which was our polling place, and the new library has opened. Right now, Brambleton Precinct is a split house district between the 89th and 90th house. Um, we've talked with the four civic leagues that encompass Brambleton Precinct in advance, and they're all okay with it. What we're hoping to do is move the 89th house, which is seen here in the purple, to the Ruffner Academy Precinct and the 90th house over to Chesterfield. So this is what the new ward, um, sorry, the new precinct lines would look like. So Brambleton precinct would be dissolved and incorporated by Ruffner and Chesterfield precincts, respectively. This is how it would impact the voters. Um, the numbers would go up slightly for both those precincts, but they can well handle the number of registered voters that would be added. These changes would be in time for the November election. We're hoping that council can review this and it'll be scheduled for a public hearing on the 24th at your formal session and a council vote. And we would send out notifications to all the voters as well as update our website and post notifications. Is there any questions? Simply to yes. change the House of Delegates districts, is that what you? It's not changing the House of Delegates districts. What it's doing is it's actually we're not moving the lines at all. We're drawing the dividing line where the current house district is split in Brambleton. So the left side that's in the 89th house would move to Ruffner, which it all still maintains in the 89th. Cut it. And then the 90th side, which is the right side or the, the Easter we'll side, would move 90th. over to Chesterfield, would stay, stay in the 90th. 90th. So we're not 
changing any of the lines. Wonderful. I just want to make that clarification. Yes. That would require a General Assembly action if you... Right, and yep. the General Assembly is getting ready to freeze all of our lines in February of next year. <laughs> so all we're right. trying to get this in place before that happens. Let's do it. Ms. Grace, you had your... No, no, okay, good. Good. okay. All right, anyone else? Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. Okay. All right, Mayor, the next item we'll give you a quick, a quick update on is a, an item on your agenda, uh, Granny's Country Kitchen, that was actually recommended for denial by the Planning Commission. And, and when that happens, uh, we'd like to give you a sense of what that's all about. So Bobby Tahan is going to give you an update. Mr. Manager. Council members, uh, item I'm briefing you on is a conditional use permit request by Gran Granny's Country Cooking at 628 35th Street and suite 636A and 636B. They're an existing uh, entertainment establishment that operates there. Uh, next slide. Um, their proposal is to add additional entertainment, namely to add a dish jockey to their existing uses. Um, a couple of the other uh, additional entertainment items are things that they are looking to add, but the key point is adding a dish jockey. Here's their previous and proposed request. Uh, the seating and capacity doesn't change. However, again, the key uh, changes reflect uh, what we allow as your standard allowances for entertainment and also the main request for a dish jockey. I keep re reiterating dish jockey because that is a main point of contention and concern by the community uh, for this establishment. Uh, unfortunately, there have been a number of incidents that have happened. In 2016, uh, the Granny's Country Cooking, the operators had been uh, operating, utilizing a dish jockey. Uh, in an effort to get them in compliance, they came in to seek a, a conditional use permit at the time, a special exception, to add the dish jockey use uh, to, their, uh, to their existing special exception. Uh, they were utilizing third-party promoters and having other incidents that involved assaults and firearms and a number of things that have been reported by the Civic League and uh, we have police reports for. Uh, when they applied in 2017, they went ahead and wanted to add dish jockey to uh, recognize that use. But, uh, and was recommended denial by the Planning Commission at that time. But in between uh, coming to uh, City Council, they withdrew their application. We were hoping at that time that they would choose to uh, operate in accordance with their existing approval, which is to, to operate entertainment without a dish jockey. Um, since that application withdrawal, they've had a number of other incidents, uh, namely um, four uses that we have documented uh, where they advertise utilizing a dish jockey, which is not permitted and then uh, police reports, and also a uh, major concern that they had with uh, the uh, Virginia ABC, where they uh, were in violation of their mixed beverage annual, uh, in their mixed beverage annual review. Uh, what essentially uh, turned out that the report that we received from ABC, from the ABC agent, that they received a 15-day suspension from selling mixed beverages. They were fined, and which was paid, but they also need to have uh, their reports to be reviewed and audited by a certified public accountant. During the, given the past issues that we've had, uh, again, we had hoped for compliance uh, for them to operate within their previous approvals, but they have not. Uh, planning staff recommended denial of the proposed addition of a dish jockey. Uh, by a 5-0 vote, the Planning Commission also recommended denial of the conditional use permit. Um, if the conditional use permit is denied, they will still continue to have their previous approval uh, at the time of special exception. Uh, and it will still bound them by their hours of operation and the previous entertainment options they had, but it will, uh, which expressly prohibits the use of a disc jockey. Um, the Civic League itself, the Park Place Civic League, uh, voted to oppose the request. Uh, there was a discussion during the public hearing that related to that uh, and concerns about the operation itself when they have a disc jockey, not necessarily the operation in general. All right, so just for your information, and 
Bobby can certainly answer questions. Thank you, sir. Right, Bobby, thank you. Well done. Um, all right, so I'm going to, uh, uh, in her capacity as landlord, Christine Morris is going to step up and uh, introduce uh, uh, Monique and Evans. And I, would, I would just say to you, we've talked a little bit about this in here, but um, as we try to diversify this economy, you know, it is um, uh, one of the things we are, have not been very good at as a region is we're a fairly risk-averse region. And um, trying to um, uh, support entrepreneurship has been a challenge for us. And we've got an opportunity to, to do so here in Norfolk. And we've got some folks that have really done some heavy lifting in the, the last couple of years and look forward to hearing from them. So with that, Christine. Thank you so much. And there are some exciting things going on at 501 Bush Street. You know that we have the ODU uh, Innovation Center. RISE is also now um, in residence in our building. And we have the exciting opportunity to uh, welcome a new tenant. You're going to see a lease tonight. Uh, and so I have the pleasure of introducing Monique Adams, who's the Executive Director of 757 Angels, and Evans McMillan, who's the Executive Director of 757 Accelerate, which is going to be locating in our building. And they are both co-managers of 757 uh, Seed Fund. Um, so they're here to talk about the entrepreneurial um, and ecosystem that's being created in the region and especially about the work that they're doing in Norfolk. So, Thanks. Monique? Yep. Sarah, I'll just step in like this. Yeah, so thank you for having us here today. This is slippery up here. Um, so I just want to give you all some context for the entrepreneurial activity that's building around the region and then specifically in Norfolk. And first I'd like to talk about why we're focusing so much on innovation here. And of course we all know that the region is suffering um, for, um, on a dependence uh, on defense spending, which has been declining. And we all have heard that we have suffered from job losses. We're still through 3,700 jobs short of uh, recovery to our pre-recession peak. But in a recent Moody's report, I'm not sure you all saw it, um, the first sentence of the report stated that Hampton Roads is in a doldrum and that job growth has completely been stalled. Um, and Hampton Roads is actually outside, this is again the Moody's report of the top 200 markets in population growth and outside the top 300 um, in employment growth, and they actually say per capita income lags behind um, Virginia, Richmond, and D.C. So this is the problem that we're looking to solve, and as Doug had mentioned previously, um, diversifying the economy is important. Innovation is a place that we can do that, um, and we're looking to create jobs, of course, high-paying jobs in excess of $70,000 a year in salary. And the data is very compelling in the innovation space. In 2010, the Kauffman Foundation, which is one of the most respected authorities on entrepreneurial activity, said in the past 25 years, almost all net job growth came from companies less than five years old, and less than five years old are startups. In 2016, the White House, the White House did a similar study that said that startups and early-stage companies created 15.5 million jobs since 2010, and in 2016, the country created um, 900,000 jobs from startup and early stage companies. And these studies emphasize the importance of startups, the role of startups in job creation, and the critical importance of building a web of support in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. So real quick, 757 Angels, five years ago, business and community leaders along with the Hampton Roads Community 
Foundation embarked on ways to look at how to diversify the economy and how to grow an, an innovation community here. And what we learned is three things, that startups and early stage companies leave areas that lack, one, an access to capital, two, tech talent, and three, programs and places. So 757 Angels formed three and a half years ago to tackle the first problem, access to capital. We're one of the fastest growing groups in the country with 120 members. We're an active and engaged group. We've invested $31 million in the last three and a half years. 90%, more than 90% of that capital is stayed in Hampton Roads and 60% of our members have made at least one investment. The primary mission of 757 Angels is to connect accredited investors to compelling innovation investment opportunities. But our mission has really evolved over time. We've recognized the need to widen the top of the deal funnel, and you'll hear this several times throughout this presentation, focusing upstream to create more compelling startup and early stage companies. And in doing that, we studied the entrepreneurial ecosystem with reInvent Hampton Roads. We studied vibrant ecosystems around the country, and we learned the recipe to create an innovation culture and entrepreneurial density. Vibrant ecosystems across the country all contain five primary components. They require resources, which are accelerators, mentor networks, and challenges. Space, so they have quality innovation hubs where entrepreneurs and resources can have collisions that improve productivity. Startups benefit from faster access to critical resources and building relationships and community benefits from job creation and economic vibrancy related to retail opportunities and increasing housing prices and decreasing vacancy rates. Capital, very critical in entrepreneurial ecosystems that you have a full capital stack. So at earlier stages, accelerators provide some of the capital, seed fund, of course, angel groups, and then venture capital. Tech talent is a critical component, and tech talent can come from universities, certifications, and things like coding schools. And then lastly is awareness. Awareness is critical for starving startups that are nascent, and um, awareness can come through the media as well as through events to promote awareness of startups, early stage company, and the resources that they desperately need to connect to. Another way to look at the ecosystem is through the creation of a continuum that companies move through from ideation to growth, and Evans is gonna take it from here. So thank you so much for having us. Um, so to pick up where Monique left off, when we did our research and our study, which we called a situational analysis, but it was really going around and studying vibrant ecosystems um, that were similar in many characteristics to ours. And one of the things we found was that this, if you, it, this just looking at it another way, thank you, looking at it another way, <laughs> we only brought one pair, um, <laughs> so we have to share them. Um, the, what we call the Ferris wheel slide, which is this one, just projected in a different way is sort of, if you think about if you're an entrepreneur and you're making your journey down the funnel, right? So this is sort of the continuum, the innovation pathway is what we've come to call it. So what we realized was after looking um, at Norfolk and the Hampton Roads area against other successful ecosystems, there really were some gaps. It was clear that we had a lot of programming that was decentralized and 
um, fragmented. And then there were successful angel group, as we noted, lots of capital being poured into the region. But in order to, what they were finding was that there were investments that were coming primarily from companies we couldn't get enough, right? Widening the deal funnel. So what we realized was we needed some resources. We needed to collect, you know, collaborate and work on how can we fill these gaps. So we identified the accelerator and the seed fund as critical um, gaps in the innovation pathway. <clears throat> so we were we worked with a group of folks. Um, we'll tell you the slides are not in a great way, but. We worked with, um, once we realized that we needed an accelerator to help fill this, um, to fill the gap along the way to funding, we worked with six cities, four universities, with the leadership of Town Bank, we were able to raise $500,000 in order to unlock $500,000 of federal uh, uh, funding from the EDA and the Department of Commerce. And we were so excited about the strength, and it was truly a regional effort. In a very short period of time, we found out about the grant, and we went to the cities um, with leadership in Norfolk, and we were able to convince this group that, in fact, we, in order to diversify the economy, we would only be stronger if we were together. And in, very, in three and a half weeks, we were able to put together that incredible, unprecedented coalition of the willing that was then supported by an additional five, 50 organizations throughout the um, community and throughout Hampton Roads, chambers of commerce, um, workforce development agencies that all saw the opportunity to diversify the economy through supporting entrepreneurship. So again, what we would like to say is there's no doubt that Norfolk had some real thought leadership here, but it is truly a regional effort to have won this I-6 challenge that allowed us to put a million dollars to work for entrepreneurs in Hampton Roads through the accelerator. So what is an accelerator? Well, it is a intense three-month mentor-driven milestone-based very selective when you see the metrics that we'll be able to show you from our first um, application period it's a very selective program that will pick five cohort companies each year seed fund them with twenty thousand dollars of non-dilutive capital so capital that does not require that the companies give up equity you wrap them in resources you support them with mentors we connect them to regional corporations as a first customer and as a test bed to really help these companies accelerate their growth as they, you know, through the three-month program to position them, and if you think back to the innovation pathway, to position them properly to be ready to take on the kind of investment they need to effectively scale. So that's when Monique was saying here, we, we put to work $30 million um, for these kinds of companies but the deal funnel needs to be wider. So the accelerator is a critical piece of that deal funnel growth. So if you hearken back to our, um, I did want to mention one partner. We were successful in partnering with, we've been leveraging a ton of resources regionally, and the NIA was our partner, the National Institute of Aerospace was our partner in bidding on the grant, and they have been you know, instrumental in helping us actually administer the grant. So I, I didn't want to fail to mention them. Um, so in a, if you go back to our innovation pathway, one of the things we've done successfully is to fill that first gap, and we'll show you visually in a minute. But the next piece that we realized when we did our situational analysis was that there's a critical funding gap. So we talked about angels being the first mover, 757 Angels was the first mover, and sort of validated that there was enough entrepreneurial activity here to really invest and to dig in. But what we realized that, was, that made a lot of other communities successful and more quickly was that there is a gap in funding before angels. So angel investors are looking for companies that have already validated their business model. 
if you go back to the pathway, what you see is that there are idea people, there are people who are working to try to validate their business model, but they're not quite there. They're, they're in the proof of concept stage. They have a great idea, maybe they have a great product, but they can't market it. They don't have the right sales team. They need a little bit of critical funding to get to the place where they can be investment worthy for angels. So what we realized was the same coalition of, of um, supporters, Town Bank, the six cities, um, and the four universities really stayed with us and said, we see what you see, we see the opportunity here, and we see that you're going you're gonna to continue to stagnate if you get through the accelerator and there isn't that sort of bridge funding that a seed fund provides. So we were able to continue with that coalition of folks to get through and win a Go Virginia grant for $140,000 um, of state funding that was matched by $140,000 of uh, private money funding, funding, and then we were um, able to unlock some operational funding. So what we're looking at is then that's our next piece, and we'll, we'll be able to show you that we've now gotten through to, Doug's giving me the sign that we're going on too long, but here's what the arrow looks like now. So one year later, we can show you that both of those yellow boxes are now full with resources that have operational funding, that have a little bit of staffing, and and some great partnerships. So we've been able to, we can tell you some exciting metrics to, to and then we'll end on the, the high note, which is that we started this effort, we bid on this grant a year ago this last month. We were successful in winning the first funding for the accelerator in September, yeah. end of September. We won the state funding for the seed fund in January. So it has been months, not years, that we've been able to fill in this, this gap, um, the gaps in this, continuum and we also have a lot of data on you can see that at the top of the funnel and we talked about widening the deal funnel we've had three really significant challenges with really significant money at play we had let's see what the numbers are we had 50 organizations compete in a NATO challenge which was competing against teams all around the world we had five Hampton Roads companies and in both of the NATO challenges um, a Hampton Roads company was the winner there were and an ICAP program, which is an early ideation program that we've worked with a coalition of organizations in the region to do idea programming, early stage, widening the deal funnel programming. We've had 38 applications. We've had 26 companies go through that program already. We're scheduled to do it uh, once a quarter, and we're, having, we're locating it all around the region. So we're trying to make sure that that, that programming is available to people throughout Hampton Roads. And then with the accelerator, we just had our first application period to have our um, inaugural co cohort of five companies. We were hoping for 80 people to express interest and for 40 applications. We were successful, and we gave you a handout that you can, it's a deal funnel, that we had 184 people express interest and 96 people apply. We were hoping for 40. We're in the process of screening applications, which is done by a group of very successful entrepreneurs and investors. And they, each one of the cities that's partnered in the organization had numerous companies that applied to the accelerator and every single one of those communities had at least one company go through, make it through the original screening. So on the back of the handout we gave you, geographically it's fascinating. So of the finalized 94 applications, 80% of them were from Hampton Roads. In the pre-screening, which is sort of taking out those who weren't eligible, um, 64 of them are from Hampton Roads. We had six international applicants from um, about, uh, yeah, five different countries. And then in the screening, 30, every single one of the communities, as I said, had numerous companies that applied. But for those who made it through the screening phase, the initial cut, um, Norfolk led the way with 33% of those companies. 
So that's exciting. And the, we, we, don't, we weren't able to cut and paste and, and slice and dice for the industry quite yet because it's a lot more manual process and we just closed the applications. But we can say that 38% of those companies were in the idea phase, which again goes to being able to widen the deal funnel that we really have a lot of, this really just proves there's a lot of entrepreneurial activity at all different stops along this continuum. 38% at ideation, 38% at um, commercialization, and 24% are validating their idea. So I feel like we've really been able to move the needle in, in less than a year, and we will have more metrics to show once we run this first cohort, which is where we'll be um, Christine's neighbor, hopefully. So, and then um, Monique wants to add a little bit about the metrics for angels. And some takeaways. Um, is that me? Yeah. Can I get the glasses back? <laughs> Two minutes. Okay, so 757 Angels, just um, again to look at this, we've seen 450 companies and 250 have applied in three and a half years. What does this mean for um, the area? It really means that we're seeing the beginning of the assembly of dense entrepreneurial density and critical mass, and that's what you can do when you centralize resources. So that's really important. Um, I want to really talk about how it really relates to Norfolk specifically, because that's why you all are here. 757 Angels has 120 members. About a third, 33% uh, of those come from Norfolk. So they're active investors in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, we've invested in 18 companies, 250 applicants, 13% of those come from Norfolk. But this is an interesting um, statistic. When it comes to screening, about a third of the applicants, so screening is where you've made it through pre-screening and now you're meeting with our board and you're getting additional vetting, That's a, uh, that demonstrates a stronger candidate. So about a third of our candidates that have gone through the screening phase have come from the city of Norfolk. Um, and then out of the 18 companies, 11% of those companies um, have received investment. Um, in terms of job creation, this is important. Of the 18 companies, and again, we've only been around three and a half years, we've employed over 250 people. Last year created more than 150 jobs, and in Norfolk, 50 people and 30 jobs with the companies. So that's really important. Um, so just some quick takeaways from Norfolk. The deal funnel statistics are a little bit low for Norfolk, which really points to the need to keep on connecting with resources. So there's a lot of ideas out there. We like to encourage more ideas. So all of these challenges that have been hosted in Norfolk, that's a really good thing to sort of squeak out these ideas, um, as well as commercialization of research out of the universities. Um, in terms of resources, again, 33% in screening, that translates to 11% that got funding. So um, that really shows that we need these resources to push the accelerator to the finish line. You have a great start with 757 Accelerate. 20 of the companies that were deferred from Angels actually applied to 757 Accelerate. So that's a good um, representation that the connection is working. And finally, space. When we did our survey, we um, surveyed 300 um, actors across the ecosystem in Norfolk. And of um, the respondents, the overwhelming majority said that a space should be located on Granby Street. Um, so um, that's something that we just wanted to pass on to you. I definitely think that um, it could be a priority for Norfolk to create um, an innovation space. 
Um, we are super thankful for the temporary space, but in order for Norfolk and for our region to continue to be competitive, we're gonna need a long-term solution that looks more like the spaces that are available in Nashville, Durham, uh, Baltimore, DC. Um, and so those are just a couple takeaways that I'd like to leave you with. Are there any questions for either of us? Thank you very much. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Um, uh, they will literally start their first uh, series of um, businesses coming in on the 14th of August. So it was important to, for you all to vote on that lease uh, this evening. And uh, you can see the progress that's been made uh, in short order. So I appreciate that very much. Um, Sarah Fuller is going to step up and talk to you about what the things that the CSB has going on uh, relative to the opioid crisis, sort of what they're seeing, what their approach is, and a uh, great deal uh, obviously happening. And, and you've got three items on your agenda tonight uh, trying to support that. Sarah? Right. Thank you. Um, so this uh, presentation has 21 slides. So I'm going to do a lot of um, moving through it relatively quickly. Keep an eye out for stuff that interest you when you want to ask more questions about. And um, Archie Boone is with me today, and um, he really can help us out a lot with anything related to social media, because I don't understand it, um, and, um, and prevention. And you're going to see him a couple of times in some videos. Um, so thank you. And Kim's doing my clicking, so I don't mess up. Uh, so the overdose death, overdose death rate for 2016, you can see that Norfolk is in the orange, orange the light orange area uh, for prescription opioids excluding fentanyl, and these are overdose deaths in Norfolk, and that color represents 22 deaths for Norfolk in 2016, um, and for heroin by itself, um, overdoses, uh, you can see our color got a little darker, and so we moved up to a higher rate. Um, and so that was 55 deaths in 2016 in Norfolk for overdose. Good news, 2017 we see a, saw a reduction from 22 to 20 for prescription opioids that did not include fentanyl, and from 55 to 35 in 2017 for heroin. And these are courtesy of the health department. Uh, Dr. Lindsay's uh, staff actually put these together for us. Um, these uh, second slides, emergency room visits for unintentional overdoses. Um, and so these people didn't necessarily die. Uh, so uh, this is a different type of graph. It shows how Norfolk compares to the average across Virginia. Norfolk's the blue line. Virginia is the green line. And you can see that it's varied over time. Get an idea for numbers on this one because everything is always, you know, per 100,000 persons. It's always a per capita chart. So that line, the, where the blue line ends for February 2018, for opioid or unspecified substances, that was 15 individuals. And for heroin, for the same month, was six. Okay, so what's Norfolk CSB seeing? So I, it's, it's, a little, um, it's a little easier to talk about, you know, what are we seeing moving in and out of the Community Services Board because we know a lot about the information that's also behind it. Um, so we see substance abuse showing up in programs we developed not for substance abuse. Our crisis stabilization center, the majority of you have actually been there or seen it. It's right next to where we do our CIT um, uh, assessment center uh, program. So this program was designed to be a subacute alternative to keep people out of local psychiatric hospitals. And, um, oh, I am so sorry. I'm talking from the wrong side. Um, this is about emergency rooms. <laughs> 
explains a couple of your looks. Okay, so we're going to talk about emergency rooms. I'm totally ready for the CSU slide when we get there, though. Um, so this is about emergency rooms. So I have an emergency services team that actually does uh, pre-screenings for persons who need to be in inpatient um, psychiatric facilities for mental health disorders. And so... The, so in uh, we did a study in 2000 and uh, September 2017 because we have to hand count this data. It's not collected any other way. We felt that substance abuse was impacting our mental health crisis for inpatient beds. Turns out it was true. So 59% of persons that we assisted in getting in the hospital for a voluntary inpatient psych admission, substance abuse was the crisis, the impacting issue related to the crisis. Uh, so um, it was, they were under the influence and the substance abuse was impacting the admission. 25% of involuntary admissions um, for the same thing. Um, and so overall, uh, as the CSB facilitated inpatient psychiatric admissions uh, using psychiatric beds, 34% of those admissions uh, were substance abuse impacting. And we've talked before about, yes, ma'am. Substance abuse. Does substance abuse include those plus more? Yes, what is it that does. Good question. Uh, so sometimes it's easy to talk about data related to a specific substance. Sometimes we don't have that information. And so um, you're getting some general information about the substance use crisis, uh, 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 crisis and how it impacts. For this particular slide, there is no data available as to whether it was opioids, alcohol, cocaine. Um, it's a it's a general impact statement. Good question. Um, so in our opioid treatment program, so this is our outpatient opioid treatment program uh, where we're providing medication-assisted treatment. That's methadone, suboxone, and Vivitrol. I'll talk a little bit more about treatment types at the end so you have questions about that. So right now, June 2018... We had 287 people in that program, um, and that was our, our client number for the month. Uh, our, our max is about 300. We're comfortable around 290. Uh, last year, we had 400, and we served 411 persons in that program. And so they not only get medication-assisted treatment, they also get therapy, education, case management assistance, well with housing, connect them to medical services, um, I can help you overcome your opioid addiction, but if you don't take care of diabetes, you're still going to die. And so we have to take care of both. We have to take care of the whole person. We also work with folks on employment uh, and benefits because we want them to be able to have uh, sustainable uh, live livelihoods as well. Okay, so here's a crisis stabilization unit slide that I was totally prepared for. Um, so I'm going to run right through that because I gave you the background on it. So on this one, um, on this one, 17% of folks that were admitted to this mental health residential treatment facil facility, we provided a substance abuse detox for. And I don't have the exact number, but the vast majority of these are alcohol detoxes. Uh, we are making some adjustments in our data system so we can uh, tease that back out for, um, for which uh, specific um, medication that is. We can go to the next slide. 
Okay, so we have a three-pronged approach. What are we doing? We're doing prevention, education, peer recovery support, and treatment and services. The three grants that you're looking at tonight, which are renewal grants, all three of them, um, uh, each address one of these uh, three prongs. Um, so we so we work on preventing uh, use uh, for especially for young people ages 18 to 24. It's their target area, um, and. Um, and also trying to figure out how to prevent op um, overdose. So we have educational programs in Norfolk Public Schools, prevention activities at community events, neighborhood fairs, and local conferences. Uh, we do revive classes on the overdose reversal. There's actually a slide on that, and you have a flyer for that on your um, table. And we do a lot of multimedia campaigns. This has been a big year for that. Um, so thank you to the Norfolk Communications Office, especially Malika, working with Archie, um, we decided to back up the older people. We backed up and let them roll with it. And um, and so uh, Lori and I were both exceptionally pleased with the work they did, and they just, they, they really have rocked it. Uh, we've got billboards up. We got a billboard. A billboard up. How many? I'm sorry, we have 12 billboards. That explains, that explains the invoice better. <laughs> so we have uh, billboards up, we have social media, we have ads in the movie theater, and you're gonna see an ad in just, uh, that ad in just a minute if you haven't seen it yet. Spots on local TV stations, and uh, hopefully you saw our staff at the drug take back day. I think we covered every spot in Norfolk with either our prevention staff, our substance abuse recovery staff, or peers. Um, yes, sir. Try to work with Adams Outdoor on getting those done for free because they run digital free um, service for um, general announcements. I, yes, they, okay. Um, Adams Outdoor has delivered um, over 70,000 uh, click through impressions for these banner ads that are up here on this board. Okay. Great, okay. So we're getting some partnership. Good. Okay. Sounds like. Okay. Um, this slide talks about social media, click-throughs, um, information like that. These are all some of the smaller, um, smaller impressions that you may have seen. There's a lot of data on there. You have this in your Dropbox. If you have specific questions about click-throughs and digital impressions, you are welcome to ask RT after I'm done. Um, this is just a sample of our social media, uh, the, the uh, communications team um, and our prevention team and with Archie and the Norfolk Prevention Coalition worked really hard to figure out what was going to make, what was going to get things through. We did a lot of testing to make sure that um, it looked like what we wanted it to look like as well. And this is an example of uh, one of the impressions that was used over the last year. Norfolk Prevention Coalition. Um, at some point, I think we should talk about this some more. This is a big opportunity uh, to do a lot of prevention, uh, to work with a broad base of community partners for prevention, to really work on health and wellness for Norfolk's youth. It's a nice umbrella. Uh, right now, we're using it for substance abuse and suicide prevention, but it could be a lot more. Did you know that... And I'm sorry. And so this is the one that goes immediately. So this is the slide that the um, prevention, uh, the prevention grant last year, um, is paying for to uh, put in the movie. This one that's in the movie theaters, right? Okay. Did you know that what's in your medicine cabinet can cause overdose and addiction? Norfolk Community Service Board provides resources 
that allow you to address your pain in a healthier way. Revive Training provides safe hands-on experience on how to identify and respond to the overdose of opioids with the use of naloxone. Naloxone empowers you to help your friends and family members who have overdosed on opioids. I am an advocate. I'm an advocate. It only takes a little to lose a lot. Did you know that what's in your medicine cabinet? These video insertions are very tricky, as it turns out. Okay, we could go to the next slide. <clears throat> okay, so this slide is about our Revive training. We've actually pushed information to you all about this um, over the past two years. You have a Revive flyer on your um, on your table as well. Um, so we work with, um, we've been doing Revive for about three years, and uh, over the last almost whole year we've been working with Norfolk Health Department. They provide free naloxone to folks who actually come and take the training, get the certification and the, and the little card. Um, if they are, or their family member or someone they care for um, is in active addiction, addiction and at risk of overdosing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so there's a, an army of lay rescuers out there, which is fantastic. Um, also, if you didn't know, uh, the Norfolk Police Department and the Norfolk Fire Department also carry naloxone and can provide um, an opioid um, overdose reversal um, on the scene. Uh, this is, uh, thank you to, um, to Michael, this is actually um, a, a screenshot of the slide of the CSB's website on how to register to take the Revive training. And we offer them at our Tywar Drive location uh, during the work day and in the evenings at our Olney Road location. And Archie's team at, does the Olney Road location. And over the past 12 months, they've done about 160. Uh, they've trained about 160 people. I don't have with me the Tywar Drive numbers, unfortunately. But it's, it's probably about the same. Um, and so this is uh, peer support. Uh, this slide's about peer support. Uh, so you have the little warm line card. You have a plastic card. Um, on your table, a green card. It's on there somewhere. There it is. Can you hold it up? Thank you. <laughs> so we're really actually excited about these cards because um, it's good. It's 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 a really nice it's a really nice product and it will stand the test of time. Um, is that that number is answered all the time um, by a peer and um, or a peer supervisor. It is a warm line that um, it's a warm line that gives people the opportunity. You don't have to be a CSB client. You don't have to be enrolled in services. You don't have to be asking for enrollment in something. If you just want to talk to someone else who actually is in recovery from opioid addiction about what you're going through, where you are right now, they will talk to you. Um, and so it's a beautiful service. We have served in this past grant year, which only lasted about six months, we've served 144 people through that warm line. It's included everything from meeting them at the emergency room, talking to their families um, or whoever their care partner is, um, uh, meeting them at, uh, talking to them, helping them uh, show up at the intake office. We do walk-in intakes for this, uh, sitting with them through the intake process and being their, uh, their recovery partner until they can get to that first appointment. And so it really is, it really is a great service. Um, and then we actually, there's um, another, there's actually a different grant that's actually expanded on our success of this, which we're going to be opening a peer recovery resource center uh, in September. And then the next slide is from Inside Scoop. 
and uh, this is actually about peer recovery services. It's a very long, uh, it's a very long video, and so we've provided you a clip of it. Thank you, Communications, for picking a nice clip for me. And um, and the full version of it though is in your Dropbox if you'd like to see it. It's also online on, on Norfolk Scoop. Individuals who are struggling with addiction don't need someone judging them, okay? And then second of all, it's the stigma of people actually uh, that's, that's on people who are struggling with addiction that it is uh, anything other than a sickness. And so uh, the conversation about it being a sickness, I know that it's new to many who may be viewing, but if we can begin to think about it and even consider that it is a sickness and that it's not a choice, then it will begin to help us lift the stigma off of individuals who are struggling with it. And then we will be able to realize that it's not just the person on the corner with the hoodie. It's not just the guy over there who's in that community over there. Shake your family tree, you'll see it's there. So I really like that clip. Because um, I think many of us, um, if we shook our family tree, uh, we wouldn't even have to shake very hard or think very hard, is that we realize that opioid, opioid addiction actually is impacting everybody um, in some way or another. Okay, so let's talk about the opioid treatment services the CSB is providing right now. We provide medication-assisted treatment. Uh, we provide methadone and suboxone detoxification services on an outpatient um, or through crisis day. We do methadone and suboxone maintenance services, which is ongoing um, for short-term to long-term, whatever works uh, for the person's uh, recovery process. Uh, we are for limited partnerships. The first one right now is with the drug court. Our Optar grant that's coming before you tonight is going to give us a couple of more uh, slots for Vivitrol, and we actually are going to do a prisoner reentry um, pilot um, for uh, Vivitrol as well. Vivitrol is exceptionally expensive. Um, it's about it's about twelve to fifteen hundred dollars per month. Um, it's an it's a long acting thirty day injectable. And so, if you don't have insurance, a good have Medicaid because the co pays four hundred dollars with regular insurance. Uh, so um, it's a very difficult uh, medication for people to afford, and it's not one that we can we can't stretch our budget but so far as well. Um, so that's actually um, a really nice opportunity for folks who uh, can recover with that. It doesn't work for everyone, though. We, do, we have outpatient substance abuse disorder, use, uh, disorder services. That's uh, mid and um, intensive um, therapy programs. Um, it's, uh, it's counseling. It's individual and group counseling. Uh, any ranges anywhere from coming in one hour a week to you can come in for three hours three times a week. Um, for depending on what your need is and everyone who gets either one of those services also gets screening and assessment and linkage to uh, detox if they need it and residential services uh, who how many people are we seeing so we served 411 people in MAT last year 89% of people are um, are, si are sticking with uh, methadone and that is the opioid replacement it is an opioid um, Ten percent on buprenorphine and suboxone, uh, much less addictive, and two percent, which is really controlled mostly by funding at this point, um, but could change with Medicaid expansion. Um, going for Vivitrol, which has absolutely no addictive qualities whatsoever. Um, and then again, uh, these folks have peer support, housing, outpatient counseling, case management, linkages, detox, residential, primary health, dental services, employment assistance and benefits. Uh, and we are also providing uh, detox 
through crisis stabilization services if they also have a significant mental health disorder. Yes, ma'am. Yes, so you replace them one with another. Is that as well? Mm -hmm. So what we're so what the oper what methadone does is it does um, uh, it takes care of a couple of things. One is that it it's legal, and so you're actually backing away. Say it again. So you're backing away. You're back. You're you're able to to continue working on your recovery without having to continue putting yourself at risk of um, getting arrested. Um, or any of the other tough things that might happen out there when you're participating in, um, in acquiring um, illegal street drugs. Uh, the other thing is that it's clean. It's clean and controlled. It's not going to be mixed with fentanyl. You're not going to accidentally overdose because you know exactly the dose you're getting. And we're only providing you with enough medications. This is highly controlled, very medical service. Um, you're only getting enough methadone to keep you from going to withdrawals, but you're not getting high. And so it gives you the ability to taper off without going into full withdrawal and, um, and then be able to switch over to either another treatment that doesn't have addictive qualities or to come off and come clean altogether. So it's down. Yeah. And so back in the day, we call these things harm reduction, right? Is that, um, is that we're, we're doing what we can to make sure we can intervene in the addiction uh, the way um, people are interested in, in getting well. Um, withdrawal from opiates is horrible. You're not going to die, but you wish you would, right? That's what they say. You can die from alcohol withdrawal on your own, but you're not going to die of opioid withdrawal uh, typically. But it's a miserable experience. Three grants are coming for you tonight. Opt-R, um, MAT grant, which is the treatment grant. Um, it actually pays us to, to expand our services by 45 people. It basically eliminates financial barriers to treatment, basically. Uh, last year, we uh, were also um, asked to serve 45 people. We stretched it to 68, um, and um, that went exceptionally well. Our Opt-R peer grant services is also uh, continuing for this and our opt-R prevention programs that we talked about, uh, which are mostly um, marketing and advertisement programs. Um, this next slide, go to the next slide. This next slide is that one of the interesting things is that um, there are a lot of providers popping up providing opioid treatment. CSB is not the only game in town anymore. Uh, Portsmouth Naval actually has an inpatient and outpatient um, opioid treatment. This uh, company called the Behavioral Health Group, um, interesting enough, the Virginia Beach providers um, um, lease space right on the line, so they're very, they're very close to us. Um, the Behavioral Health Group has an outpatient um, opioid treatment program uh, right off of Princess Anne Road. Tidewater Psycho Psychotherapy is on Witch Duck, very close as well. Unity Medical Group is in Ghent. Uh, GHR Center for Addiction and Recovery is in Huntersville. The Right Path actually has a location in Virginia Beach and actually is opening one in Norfolk. And there are a lot of private clinic physicians uh, that will do office based Suboxone. Um, and so these are growing uh, the, uh, the GAP program, um, the development of the arts service, which said basically um, says we're going to provide treatment for substance use disorders just like we do for others. And so that that provide us the ability to bill under that 
And then with Medicaid expansion, um, substance abuse services are going to explode. We're going to be the tiny person in town. This is the last slide, Jane. We did that. Okay, so the hope continues, and I actually already covered this. A gap got us a long ways. Arts got us a long ways. Um, is is that? But does ex this is going to be exceptional? We'll see. We'll see at least a forty percent increase of persons with substance use disorders in our city that will have insurance to get treatment that never had it before with Medicaid expansion, January first or sometime shortly after. That's it. Great note to end on. Obviously, this is a, a crisis in our community. You can see that a lot is happening. A lot of, of good things are coming on, but that when this, um, when these, these addictions get hold of people, it, it really impacts their whole family and their community. Doing that. Uh, this crowd needs a boost, and so I'm going to ask James Mickle to come up and talk about Nighthawks and nothing like Parks and Rec to wake the crowd up, right? James put a lot of pressure on you, bud. But this is, we got actually another great year going underway, and we're two weeks in, and uh, third one up, but uh, welcome, James. Good evening, Mayor Alexander, uh, members of the City Council, Manager Smith. I'm excited. I have the opportunity to provide you information um, and updates on the Norfolk Nighthawk program. Uh, we're in the third year of implementation of Norfolk Nighthawks, and it has grown tremendously. Uh, the summer of 2016, uh, we were at two facilities, and we implemented a program for six weeks. This year, we're going to five facilities around the city. We have nine weeks of programming. Uh, we kicked off programming on June 29th at Norview, Berkeley, and Huntsville Community Centers. We had a special kickoff event at Norview um, on the 29th from 9 to 12.30 a.m. We had 124 people in attendance. Uh, phenomenal event. We offered, we had two all-star basketball games. Uh, the first was comprised of players. It was a, a co-ed game, but it was comprised of players from our adult league basketball uh, season and also female, female local college basketball players from Norfolk. Uh, the second game uh, was comprised of players from the Lake Taylor Boys State winning basketball team and then past participants of the Nighthawk program. Uh, you can see by a few of the pictures, if you look at the one on the far right, you can see just how busy the gym was on that night. Uh, those two games were refereed by NBA referees, uh, Mr. Tony Brothers, uh, who's a Norfolk native NBA Finals referee, and also Mr. Leroy uh, Andrews. Uh, if you look at the middle picture at the bottom, you'll see our city manager, uh, Mr. Doug Smith. So he did he did the welcome for us, which was phenomenal, and he threw up a ceremonial uh, jump ball. Uh, last year, Mayor Alexander and Councilman Johnson did that. I won't say who was best. Uh, I was there that. But if you look at that picture on the bottom right hand corner. That's Mr. Smith contemplating the NBA career as a referee. So that may tell you who was the best. Uh, we had several vendors at this event. Uh, we had Tidewater Tech. We had Dr. Anna Paz Harris and the uh, Urban Renewal Center. Uh, we had the health department who was marketing uh, their program for um, food handlers classes at Huntersville. Uh, the police department had their recruitment team out, uh, several vendors, and we had a great time. Uh, Norfolk Police Department has been a partner with us since the beginning of Nighthawk. Uh, they provided uh, safety and on the ground floor, they've been out interacting with the community. But this year, they went a step further and brought out their 501 phase program uh, with Ms. Karen Parker-Chesson and Jermaine Lewis of Cutting Edges. They provided 20 haircuts for young people in the gym while basketball games were going on at this event. Uh, if you see 501 phase, you'll see photos of players, officers, uh, staff and officers. It was a great event, and thank you for the police department for all their support. Uh, 
of the Nighthawk program. East Ocean View held their first Nighthawk fishing social. Uh, I see Mr. Rogers there. He put a rod in the water. I went inside, and he said he caught a big fish. Never saw a fish. So I don't know. He had on a suit with sneakers. Yes. He had on a suit with sneakers. He, yes. Uh, but we had 20 participants at um, our first try at the Fish and Social, and we'll do it again this Saturday. Uh, free taco, rod, reels, um, and bait. So people had an opportunity to come out and fish with us. We're doing it again this Saturday. Okay. Same time, 9 Same time okay. from 9 to 1230. Uh, it was a great showing, and we also started Nighthawk East Ocean View. We had around a little over 40 participants. Uh, these are, this is our participation rate so far this year. Uh, we're only two weeks in, and we're already over 500 participants, 515 to be exact. And to put that a little bit more in perspective, in 2016, we finished the full program with 1,079. We're going to shatter that this year. And we have an ambitious goal of 2,500, and I think we'll reach it. We keep marketing the program and interacting the way that we have been. Uh, just a few key events, classes, and uh, demonstrations that will take place. Berkeley, our computer coding classes on July 20th and 21st. Uh, they'll be sponsored by WHRO. Uh, Huntersville Community Center, our two food handlers certification courses, sponsored by the Health Department on the 20th of July and the 20th of August. Uh, again, we're at the Late Night Fishing Social on July 13th at East Ocean View. And 501 Fay is going on tour. They'll be at Lambert's Point on July 27th. Uh, if anyone at the table here, anyone in the room, this is a small opportunity for marketing, but if anyone here has a resource that they can offer to the community, give me a call. If you have someone that you know who may be able to come out and offer something to the community in the realm of uh, health and life skills, let me know so we can get them out and continue the program's growth. That's all that I have. Any questions? Fantastic, James. Thank, right, you. thank James, you. The picture James didn't show you is um, in the tip-off. <laughs> Tony Brothers said to me, now, these guys can really get up. you gotta, you got to put it up there. Yeah, so I got up there. I put it up. And the picture you see is their hands like this. They've gone, and the ball is still about eight feet over. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Brothers blew the whistle and threw me out. <laughs> and, uh, I think I've been uh, thrown the tip for the last time. Doug, um, Doug have you um, considered nominating this for one of the VML awards? Is this? It's a great idea. He did. He did. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Okay. He will again. Um, okay. Last thing I'd say, I don't know if Kim can find this on really short notice. Have you all seen the lip sync video from the police department? <laughs> yes. If you, if you haven't seen it, I gotta tell you, it is, it is what is our, our views at this point? Uh, we're, uh, police department's over almost 20 million. We're up on our city's page, it's 6 million. 20 million? Fox yeah. News, CBS News. <laughs> it's a challenge. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So with that, Mayor, we're done. We're going to push the last couple of presentations, Ooh. and uh, Mr. Johnson always likes me to get it. And if you do want to see it, I think uh, Kim's going to find it for you, but we are officially done with presentations. Video, you going to lip sync. Oh, yeah. I think there needs to be a council yeah. lip sync challenge.